0: Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it. And I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation, and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity. And a mindset shift from I have to, to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast.
1: Welcome to this week's Freedom Fridays podcast where I have a I was going to say an old buddy, but I've known this guy pretty much ever since I came into Australia. And the company that I joined at the time, he joined at the same time. And so we've kind of had this journey together, although his background is significantly different to mine. And i will explain that in a second. And so I'm really uh, quite honoured and I'm really looking forward to it because I'm sure we're going to get some banter going on here. Uh, please welcome Julian.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
1: <laughs> You're welcome, mate.
2: So Julian,
1: uh, before we get into it, I, I start the same way. I ask people, you know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, what's the big change they're moving from to? So maybe just a, a headline. What was? What's an example of a big change that you've gone through?
2: Yeah, so when you gave me a bit of a heads up on this is the the opening question, I, and it's the same answer I give whenever anyone gets uh, ask that or something or gets you to reflect on significant change in life. It's going from one completely unrelated career, seemingly on the surface, to yeah. uh, it's like a carpenter going into banking, right? Or, yeah, something like that. So it was going from a sporting, you know, full, you know, semi-professional, professional sporting life, traveling the yeah. world, uh, enjoying the sun and the rays, to uh, putting on a suit to go into the city every day to be a consultant.
1: Cool, cool. Now obviously I know the story and I know the background and I've kind of followed the story all the way through. Would you just, for the listeners, just give us a couple of minutes on what you were doing before so they understand the, the significance of the difference and to what yeah. you ended up doing?
2: Yeah, so... It all started back in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 16, there's a giveaway, so I had a very fortunate sporting career. I was, grew up in Western Australia, uh, grew up with a, uh, a very sporting family. Mum was a, a very high-level playing netballer. Dad was an AFL, professional AFL player for about 10 years. Wow. And I was expected to do the same. And I was actually taking that pathway in AFL. And I, came, I went to this school and I came across this sport of volleyball, indoor volleyball at the time. And so we're talking the, the mid-80s here and I still do, I was playing basketball and tennis and cricket and everything as you do as a kid growing up. But this volleyball thing kind of hooked me in and I went, this is a really enjoyable game. It's simple, but it's really difficult to master. And I just found some of the movements of it really, really uh, related to some of the the physical elements in in AFL and basketball, which I was playing at the time And, and I was good at it straight away with some mates and well, and I went to a school that was quite driven and passionate about supporting volleyball as a sport, which is quite unusual in Australia. Uh, having said that, it's the biggest end-of-year national sporting event, school sporting event in Australia is an indoor volleyball schools tournament. They get about 5,000 athletes every year. Is that right? So long story short, I've, I gave up all of my rounds 16, 17. I quit all my other sport. Started and just focused on volleyball. Never knew it would turn into a career. Wasn't a a conscious choice, I'm going to make this a career. I just had this this drive bubbling away in the back of my head. Almost, uh, I know this is something I'm going to be doing for the next 20 years. I teamed up with a a guy who was about seven years older than me for the beach game, the two-on-two version. So moving out of indoor the beach game and at 17 this is probably the defining moment around what then led me to knowing that this is the thing i wanted to do is at 17 i was we won the national championship so we were real pioneers of the sport these days the the national champ champs is quite significant back in the day there was probably about three or four teams that were really going to win that tournament and we ended up winning it so at 17 that was in December. And in February, the next I just finished my HSC. I was in February, I was sitting on the beach in Ipanema in Brazil, playing in the World Championships. Going <laughs> and, and I'm hanging out with all these heroes of the sport, all these people I'd read about and seen in magazines and watched in videos. And we'd play during the day, play hard. And then we in Brazil, they have these little, you know, it's a very much a, a beach culture at that time of year. We would all all the players and the fans, we'd hang out on the beach with the locals, and I remember sitting there having a beer in my hand, just looking around, going, how good is this? Yeah, wow. Yeah, and look, not a lot of money in it. I'm not retiring on what I did, but the experiences, and so that was really the start of then playing on the world tour, going to three Olympics, commentating at two Olympics, and and, and just spending the world travelling summer to summer for 17 years. Very fortunate life.
1: Wow. Look, we could have a conversation just about that.
2: Oh, I've got so stories. Let, let me
1: get this. So in, you know, in whatever year it was, in the, the October of that HSC year, there you are, mid-October, doing your English exam yep. to be followed four months later, playing in a, a, a global beach volleyball championship on the beach in Brazil.
2: Yeah, it's quite mind-blowing when I look back at it. <laughs> and I did have those moments going, when I was there doing it, going, this is me, this is, what, this is what's happening. Yeah, this is Brazil in 1990, Brio in 1990, right? Still, a, um, I mean, a lot of people still haven't been there, but it was a, I, I remember getting there and changing. I, I had about $200 in, in spending money for the week or the 10 days that we were there. And I changed all that money on the Wednesday that we arrived. And the next day it was worth half. And then the day after it was, because their inflation was something like 500, wow. 600%. So all the Americans were laughing at me, making of the greenhorn. They called me the rookie, going he 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 changed all his money. You know, like you'd change fifty bucks one day, and then you change because the the inflation was so high. So it was it was really interesting times back in the day.
1: Well, so uh, there's so many strands we can pick up on. Um, I'm going to pick up on a couple just to pick up on that. And what I'm what I'm interested in understanding if you if you can reflect that change of going from a, a high school kid doing his HSC, who was kind of into beach volleyball, kind of doing okay, to four months later playing in the World Championships on a beach in Brazil, which for most of us is like, you know, iconic. What, yep. um, what identity shift did you have to go through, even in those four months?
2: Yeah, so, I, to a certain extent, I, it was something that I'd anticipated. Mentally, okay. yeah, I was already thinking, okay, this is on the radar. It's going to happen. I want it that much. It's going to happen. There was almost no doubt. And my teammate at the time, we were of the same mindset. Uh, the the interesting thing with the whole the school thing, and this is I'm I'm dealing with this now with my own teenage boys is I didn't play any volleyball in my year twelve. I quit all my state teams. I quit all my representative stuff to focus on my studies. Because wow. I was, yeah, I had a mum who hit the glass ceiling. She didn't get to uni because of that's what happened back in the day. You left yep. school when you were 15. But a very intelligent mum and she just went, you're going to uni. So I put a lot of my t- effort and time focused resources into getting a mark <laughs> that would yeah. you know, get me into university to get a piece of paper because she goes, you're going to need it one day. Yeah, you know, this sporting thing is not going to last forever. And I was up for it and I wanted to do it. Yeah. So from, from a mindset point, yeah, you know, that, that identity shift. I always knew that as an from, from an athlete being at the pointy end of a sport in terms of being in the elite. That was I always from about the age of seven, I had that identity because I was always better at all my mates at everything. And I sound like uh-huh. a wanker saying that. But really? I was always really, yeah, picking up a sport like that and I was always really good at it. Yeah. Right. It's just one of those things. Right. So I knew that yeah. I, but my dad, I grew up in a house with a professional footballer. Yeah. So he would take me across the park and he would get me to kick with my non-dominant foot, left foot kicking, right? In AFL. It's very rare these days. They don't do it anymore. And he just he'd get me to he'd show me how to do it and then I'd do it like that. You know, it just happened. And wow. so I Create drills and I'd do, and so when I play footy, I was always one of the best on the in, right. on the ground and in the team. I was playing in representative type uh, teams, no matter what sport it was. So I always knew that I had a, an athletic ability, yeah. so that started at a very young age. So it wasn't that surprising for me to be. It was more just how cool is this versus yeah. well, I'm now an elite athlete.
1: I'm, I'm, I've got to go down that path for a moment because that, that fascinates me um, I in nowhere near that league I was okay at sport as a kid um, I, what I'm really interested in that at seven years old to be that good at almost everything and knowing those are some very formative years when almost fitting in is the most important thing yeah, how did you yeah. navigate that when you were obviously not fitting in because you were so good at everything how did you fit in
2: Yeah, I was good at. I wasn't a nerd. I was okay at school. Had a good group of mates. And you know, as boys, if you're good at sport, that tends to give you a bit of a a status in the hierarchy of things. That you're the good good footy player or the good whatever. And so that's why a lot of boys at school get sport focused because if you're good at something, and I'm seeing it in my 16 year old, he's known at his high school as being the, the guy who can dunk. As a 16 year old, right? He's quite explosive and athletic himself. So I can see those types of him walking around with his peer group with a certain identity. Uh, He's the musician, he's the basketballer, uh, that type of thing. So I remember having at at primary school once having this, you know, they pick the teams and the teachers would go, Julian, you're captain and the second best guy or whatever the other guy top, he was also captain. And I always remember going, just thinking, you know, those those kids who were crap would always get picked last. And I remember thinking that that's just, that's not right. And I remember picking all the good kids and my mates and stuff. And then you'd go and Dave or whoever that crappy kid was. And I always remember going, how crap must that feel for him to be picked last? So I remember once just picking a whole bunch of crap kids to play on my team. And the other team got stacked because everyone was like, "How how come you didn't pick him? And he's picking all the guys who normally get picked last. So for me, I've always had also had a bit of, you know, empathy as a kid around. Right. Not it, it, If you're given the responsibility as a leader or a captain to go, make sure that you're spreading the love a little bit, that it's not yeah. just about you and I can do everything. I, you know, mm. I, I, I rarely say to anyone that I was good at most sports I picked up because right, that you just uh, it's just not my style. But yeah, because we're right, talking yeah. about this, that's yeah. the...
1: Yeah, and I, and I know that of you, you know, you know, you and I have lots of great banter together because we're kind of mates, but I know you don't shout about that outside that. Um, I'm going to pick up on something else here. So I re- oh, we're recording this in the Olympic fortnight, which is kind of nice. And
2: oh, yeah.
1: there's some, so many things we could chat about. I'm, 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 I might get you on later just to talk about that. But I read about, um, and I think it's happening today, Lauren Price, who is a, a, a boxer, when she was seven. I think eight, but I'm kind of making it up a little bit. At primary school, wrote down on a piece of paper, I want to be a Taekwondo World Championship. I want to represent Wales at football, and I want to go to the Olympics. She's now done all three. And she's actually, I think this afternoon, she's fighting for, uh, I think, the bronze medal match or something like that. So it's interesting. There's probably dozens and dozens and hundreds of kids that didn't think like that, and have done things and dozens that did think like that and never made it did you have any inkling at seven I want to go to the Olympics I want to be a world champion I want to be a sports superstar <laughs>
2: uh well sports superstar um in, the, in my house I am um well, the so at that age no because growing up in country WA the Awareness around the Olympics and other sports outside of AFL and cricket was zero, right? Yeah. Uh, it was quite a close. This is we're talking seventies and early eighties. Is that your eyes weren't open to oh there's other there's other sports that might that you know, global type sports. Yeah. Uh, so I I don't know I never had a, a a deliberate I mean that that kind of deliberate. I come across those types of athletes too that I go really you were that focused and you had that. that that mindset to write it down and make the decision that I am going to be. I never had that. Okay, ever? It was just something in the back of my head. It was just like, I'm not really good at sport.
1: Did it ever come to the front of your head? At what point did you go, oh, I'd love to get to the Olympics?
2: Uh, It was when I remember getting up at about 2 or 3 a.m. in Perth to watch the announcement of Juan. Antonio Samaranch announced Sydney as the okay. holder of the uh, this is 1993 early 90s wasn't it yeah 1993 and about July 1993 and I remember him announcing it and I went oh, okay well I'll be at those Olympics and I went back to bed wow. that, that, that was a that you know that was a, a moment when I I could see the pathway of our of beach volleyball heading in that direction because there was wow. I, I'd already participated in the test event. In Spain in '92, that was the world champs. That was a, a bit of a, a lead into then '96. And I just remember having a, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll be in the Olympics in 2000, but the first one will be '96, so I'll, I'll be good for that one, and I should still be around for Sydney. It was just a matter of fact thought that I had, wow. but I went back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have to really sit down and inspire myself and go, you can do this. It was just like, yeah, I'll be there
1: almost with a a nonchalant certainty that's just going to happen. There was no, I need to big myself up about it. I've just, well, that's just inevitable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm really good at this. I'm the best in Australia. If I stay, you know, I'm competing on the world tour. I know where I stand in the pecking order and where things are at. Yeah, I should be good to go by then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, I might just ask one more question about the Olympics, because I'd love to talk all day about this. And then maybe we'll jump into the, the change that you had to make, which yeah, is also yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, you'll have seen the headlines about, you know, Simone Biles uh, not, not competing because of our mental or physical well-being, you could argue. And, and I was a little bit neutral as to what I thought about it because I didn't feel, I've never been one, the top 1% in anything. So I've never competed at that level to even know what that feels like. And she's like 0.00001% of her of her class. So you, mm-hmm. you're far closer to what that was like than I'll ever be. So from your perspective, uh, you know, at an Olympic Games, you're competing in your sport and you don't quite feel right, mentally or physically. How do you reconcile that decision?
2: <laughs> well, then this is a really big one. And it, well, you, You as an this is my experience, but also then observing others, and I'm seeing it on play out every day during the Olympics. I mean, how good is the Olympics? Is you never feel right as an athlete at the Olympics, right? And if you do, you're 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 kidding yourself because there's always this uh, immense insecurity and fear and anxiety bubbling away around. You know, this is it. This is everything for for a lot of people. They get one chance. And it's really interesting listening to there's people who have been to four or five. I've been to three, and I look at people going to four or five and go, that's kind of great to have you know, multiple yeah. opportunities because <laughs> it's such a great experience, right? There's so many cool things that happen and experiences that happen uh, at the Olympics. That it's the and it's our old mate, Clark Perry, who I met, who was working with Don Talbot with the Australian swim team for so many years. It's not those athletes that excel themselves at the Olympics that do well, it's the ones that regress the least. And I remember that going yes. because my, my first two Olympics, I regressed in terms of my performance and what I could do. I got tired, I got tense yep. and it showed up on court until I found a, a mindset coach, a performance coach mm. who was a, a former opera singer, and opera singer coach. And she was just going into oh. some NLP coaching and she used me as a bit of a guinea pig and we peeled back some layers and... Uh, it changed my life in a lot of ways but from a then in Athens my last olympics stepping onto the court with a with a just this calmness serene calmness against the uh, the reigning gold medalists that were playing in game 1 in Athens and we completely towed them up because with my teammate and I we were just playing loose you know that turned the zone with we weren't flustered, we were highly aroused, but it was just the right amount. There was a very little anxiety about what we were doing. And so the key point is I wish I'd had that when I was 20. And I and, oh. and a lot of athletes and a lot of sports are still very immature around the way they support their athletes from a not just a, a mindset and performance, but then mental health point of view. Yeah. Because you see it, there's a lot of, of grief that goes with losing. It, when things are that are really important and there's so much on the line and you see a lot of the agony of defeat. And there's also the other side of it, too, where you see and they've been showing uh, Kathy Freeman highlights during these Olympics. And you yeah. just watch her cross the line at the Olympics and the expression on her face yeah. and her whole physicality is anything but elation. Yep. Is complete and utter. Thank God, this thing is finished. Yeah, it's relief. I can just oh, and it's all this. You can yeah. just see her just yeah, yeah, yeah. Look on her face and pure, yeah. just oh, like this is this was that was really hard. And then after a couple of minutes, she gets up and she runs around with the flag and stuff. Yeah. And so the other side of it is yeah, after you've you've reached that pinnacle and you've won, insert whatever performance you're after. What next? And that whole. depression or deflation that can happen after, well, I've got this thing, so what?
0: Yeah. I I
1: thought the best, for me, the thing that I can relate to the most with what Simone Biles has come out and said on, you know, many, many things she said about it, I I think for me, the thing that I relate to the most is, and interestingly for her, only because of the outpouring of support and love that she got having made the decision, was that she then recognised she was more than just our accomplishments.
2: That's the other thing, right? Is the how much of your identity is wrapped up as, yeah. yeah. And this is I call it the the tattoo effect. Is I remember in Sydney in two thousand. So when when you host an Olympics, you get direct entry into every sport, right? So Australia is not really a handball superpower, for example. Yeah. So, but we had a handball team there, and there's other sports that we don't particularly specialize in or or do. But we're not. Uh, we're not like world leaders, it's sports that we don't really play, uh, wrestling or whatever it might be. And, and yet you, as an athlete, and so I know this is the case, they went looking for handballers. So they started pitching different athletes from different sports to create a handball team. Yeah. And I remember we were all finished and, and everyone wanted to go to this tattoo parlor in Surrey Hills to get some kind of memento tattoo yeah. from the Olympics. Yeah. And there were seven of us, uh, including me, and I didn't get one. Because it, I just right. went, well, I'm not here to – I was here to, you know, get on the podium, get a medal, have something, you know. I, I'm not here just so that someone can see my Olympic tattoo on my shoulder or my calf and go, hey, were you in the Olympics? You know, so for me, it's you know, people who – and some teams have a culture of oh, once you're in the team, you get the tattoo. Yeah. I do see a lot of people walking around with Olympic tattoos – so people go, oh, you're an Olympian, as opposed, you know, there's that whole, oh, yes, uh, by the, oh, yeah, how could you tell? Oh, oh, my tattoo, or that little thing, yes, you know that. Yeah. And, and so the whole, a lot of their self worth is wrapped up into the 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 Olympian thing, and oh. and, yeah, that, and that's that's cool. That's what that's people's journey, but that's not mine. And to your point, then around is- identity is, especially in in sports like gymnastics and swimming. Uh, where they get them so early that your identity is you are a gymnast. That's ninety percent of who you are, yeah. as opposed to a daughter, a friend, yeah. uh, you know, a physics major, <laughs> you know, a gardener, a DIY, a surfer, uh, whatever. Yeah. All yeah, all, yeah, this, yeah. all the different identities that we have yeah. and that we can rely on. But when you when you see yourself as just a, a gymnast, and I'm sure that's how Simone Biles has. Seen yeah. herself. I'm, yeah. I'm the I'm the GOAT, I'm the greatest. So when it starts to leave you, and the other thing, the, the stuff they do, the repercussions when it goes wrong can be quite significant health-wise, yeah. right? They can yeah. snap bones and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when, when you're so, I, I don't know her, but I imagine that she's quite wrapped up in Simone Biles' The GOAT, that when it starts to go wrong, that, that can be pretty hard to deal with for people. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I always think every day about some of the points that I played in games and at the Olympics. That if they'd gone differently, would I have been? Yeah. So some of this stuff is like a grieving process. It never leaves you. Yeah, it is. And and yeah, I just go, well, it makes you stronger. Gives you good stories to tell.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going to get to the original point of our conversation in a second um, because I want to talk about I want to talk about identity, but I want to. I'm going to play a little thought experiment with you. so you've obviously played at the highest level in your domain, and you would recognize and you talk about and you know you and I believe in the importance of mindset. If you were giving someone advice about mindset, what would your top three
2: tips be? Be open to yep. the idea of uh, that you need you, you need. That, that getting mindset support would be really helpful thing to do. Yeah. Right. That, that's the first one is being open to it yeah. and, and not relying on yourself. I always relied on myself. I was always been quite independent, yeah. organized my own travel training. I was very self-driven. I'd, I always do solo training sessions, yeah. um, that type of thing. So I was always quite, I you know, I'm mentally strong. I'm, I'm just, number one in Australia I don't need help until I found someone who opened my eyes to oh you know there's stuff going on mate that you, yeah. you need to sort out and know, and, yeah, it's one of your quotes Pete is the job of most parents is to make their kids less screwed up than they are that the, the point <laughs> is that you know I thought I was a pretty well balanced self-aware individual uh you know having my parents divorced when I was fifteen. The old man wasn't around, for, you know. He, some stuff that he did, uh, more to, to make life difficult for mum. I just didn't respect and went, "Why are you doing this kind of thing?" So yeah. I shut the old man out of my life for a bit. Uh, when I real, when I could have done with having a, a dad around, yeah. for example, and I went, yeah. "All right, I'm making this choice. I'm dealing with this pretty well." I thought, right, from a, yeah. a male point of view, until I had some ladies peeled back and and went, "Yeah, I've actually got some stuff to address." Yeah. So that's quite. Heavy stuff, and I reckon most people have stuff that they don't address. You know, yeah. for, from their past. That if, if you look back and apologize to yourself and to other people, and you know, worked out what your core can feel that. reason for being around is, which is love, and ultimately, that, ultimately that's yeah. what I learned yeah. was uh, it tends to free you up a lot. I'm, I'm sort of tangenting here, so be open to it. Don't you know, get some help from people, and then. And then don't expect that just one, one intervention or one interaction is going to solve everything for you, that it's Mate, ongoing, it's non-stop.
1: Thank you. Well, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that that's brilliant. And actually one of the reasons I asked you was, because I think it was you that shared this with me. You went to an Olympic uh, conference and you heard Michael Johnson speak. And do you remember showing me his slides so here's Michael, oh, Johnson. Yes. here's Michael Johnson, the world champion, you know, GOAT at 200 and 400, everyone loves him. And he's got these PowerPoint slides with advice about mindset. And from what I remember, it was set goals, work hard, ask for help. Yeah, right. And what, what struck me then, and it strikes me now, as part of the reason I'm doing this is these insights are right in front of us. Yeah. They're from the guy next door. They're from the girl in Woolies. They're from the taxi driver. They're from the person in the park. There's ordinary people doing exactly the same things as the Michael Johnsons and the Lebrons and the Beyoncés and the Michelles. It's the same stuff. Yeah. And, and whilst we might be inspired by Beyoncé, the girl next door is going through the same stuff. It's the same thing. Mindset's important. Ask for help. What's your purpose? Uh, and that's yeah. kind of why I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm doing this because I think the, the answers lie a lot closer to us than these celebrities.
2: Yeah. They're sitting it's within a, us. Yeah, it's internal. It's an internal thing. And, and well, I know I'm sitting here having, being uh, with the Olympian tag and, and all that and, that, and that's nice and I'm really, I, I feel very fulfilled that I've experienced that. And I was talking mindset with a client the other day and, and someone had Googled me before the session and, and they we were talking about, yeah you know, as a, we were talking about the Olympics and stuff. And I never say, Oh yeah, by the way, this is my background. But one of them piped up and went, her name was Teresa. She went, Julian, when are you going to tell us about your background? And I went, what do you <laughs> mean Teresa? And she goes, Oh, well, I Googled you before the session. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and it, so I, and I'd been working with this other person on, the, on these sessions who was my tech host for about six months. We've been doing some stuff together. And, and, and someone what are you talking about, Teresa? What's his deal? And so I told them. And, and the person I'd been working with, Greg, he went, I've been working with you for six months, and I had no idea that yeah. this is some of your background. So, yeah. yeah. And if you're going to talk about mindset and high-level sport, they're very much connected. So once the, the cat was out of the bag, I did share it with people. And I went, look, I don't want, the reason part of the reason why I don't I, I don't want to talk about myself or my my background from a sporting point of view is I would be eye rolling too, going, oh, here's a freaking Olympian telling me about mindset and resilience and all this kind of stuff. And I'd just be going, yeah, okay, you're an Olympian. Oh, I can't relate to that. I'm I, I'm out here on the shop floor making, you know, insert widget, dealing with my team and yep. grumpy grumpy old process operators, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you know, for me, there's a bit of a disconnect around that. So I tend to stay away from it. Yet if there's stories that are relevant to what we're talking about at the time, I'll go, oh, yeah, here's a story. Because people love that stuff too, right? It's just a little bit of it's entertaining. Yeah. So, you know, I look at this with my boys going, yeah, they're pretty talented athletes, And I don't want them to just grow up to be happy. I want them to grow up to really fulfill their potential. You know, as a parent, I don't want them, Mm -hmm. if they're happy, but they're not fulfilling their potential, I want them to stretch themselves a bit more too. So once again, it's reflecting internally and having that, that, that journey as a human to fulfill whatever it is you want to do, that you're just not settling for second best. Um, Loath as
1: I am, I'm going to catapult to your post Olympian career and, so you went from beach to office, you went from <laughs> yeah,
2: beaches, bare feet yeah.
1: to shoes, you went from board shorts to suit and tie. What, what did you have to go through to shift that identity?
2: Uh, really challenging, <laughs> scary, exciting, um, you know, opportunity, about, uh, plentiful, you know, it was a bit of everything. So I remember going, okay, I know I need to make this transition. And by the last 18 months to two years of playing, I knew retirement was coming. And about every two minutes of those last 18 to two years was, okay, so what are you doing with the rest of your life? Okay, all right. <laughs> Park that. What are you doing with the rest of your life? What are you doing? So I got to a point where, yeah, it was, it was nagging me. It was bugging me. I knew I, was, I had to make the transition transition. And, and this is the, the one of the things I've stolen off you, Pete. It's not the change we all rationalise that. And I know that I need to stop playing because, as athletes, you all retire at some stage, unless you're Michael uh, uh, Hoy, um, <laughs> the equestrian guy who's still cracking. Yeah, Andrew off. Hoy, sixty-two. Andrew Hoy, yeah. Um, at some stages, you've got to you've got to make a change. And I went right. I've got an opportunity to look at this two ways: scary, intimidating, unknown, or Exciting, um, yeah. Unknown, yeah. Growth. I'm going to do something completely different. How cool is that going to be? And I, and I remember reminding myself, it's this one over here. It's this one over here. And this is why when I found Roger Si and this mindset stuff started coming, I went, Oh, I'm doing that. I've been doing that. Yeah, you have. So, the, and this is one of the biggest challenges. And this is why mindset. Someone like Simone Biles, she's probably looking at life afterwards. Uh, probably in a better position than a lot of athletes will be you know, financially supported because you get a lot of people transitioning out of pursuing a sport. Rowing's a classic example. There's not a lot of money in it. That a lot of these guys they they stop after the Olympics, go work for two years, and then they get back into training to qualify again. Is that the hardest thing I ever did was work uh, like corporate life? Yeah. So much harder than training, weightlifting. Running around on the sand, jumping. You know, I used to go to the beach, you know. For that was your office. Three, four hours a day. That was the office down at Manly, and then I'd travel the world, going to other beaches. I mean yeah. I had to perform and pay and perform for the rent. You know, I didn't. We didn't get a lot of sponsorship or yeah. um, uh, submit, You know, probably get about five grand a year in government support, and that would pay pay for airfares. It's not a lot of money right the the coaches that traveled they'd get everything paid for plus a per diem whereas the athletes were very very unsupported in a lot of ways so it was quite stressful competing from for your pay packet but it was such a great life right i've been around the world 20 times and seen a lot of uh, cool places and then having to transition into work life The so it was one reframing it going could be scary exciting I'll take that option because that's going to be a better, the exciting
1: option, but better energy.
2: And and so and then the next bit of advice. And so once again, I just another where could I get help from? I can't do this by myself. Who who can help me? So one of my mates was in recruitment. So I called him and just said, what do you reckon? You got some advice for me? And he goes, oh, I could give you an internship here. You can come and do some free work for me, and that didn't excite me very much. <laughs> he, but he said the best, he goes, the best thing I can tell you is, <clears throat> given where you're at, is you don't have a CV really, right? Yeah. From a <clears throat> commercial point of view, you have to make appointments with mates and mates of mates who know you and who know where the opportunities might be and where you might, where you might be a good fit, and just start talking to people and say, I'm out there. I'm after something. And so I did that. And I remember um, uh, there's a client of a mate of mine, um, I had a cup of coffee with him in in the city. He was the head of learning and development for a large um, uh, construction train transport company, huge company, like listed type company. And I remember sitting down with him and he goes, what are you doing? What are you after? I said, oh, I don't, you yeah, know, I can't remember what I said. But he, he, and then he goes, well, I was just up at Rojan, and they're looking for consultants. I could put you in touch. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, okay. So what do they do? And he gave me a bit of background. Can't remember what he said. Went home, did some googling, saw the Rojan Plus SI uh, logos yeah. when the merger was happening, yeah. and and just started reading some of the what what this company is about. I went, oh, it's Kind of interesting that mindset stuff too. I, I could probably, you know, at least get an interview. So he put me in touch with an old mate of ours, uh, Peter Griffith, and uh, sent it, made up a resume and, and made it. And I don't make the joke, I made, I made my resume 14 font instead of 12 <laughs> or 10, just to just, just so it went more than one page. You
1: build it out a bit,
2: but yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so I and th- that conversation worked out, and I didn't target this consulting career yep. that, that we have and go, this is what I want to do. It really fell into it. And, yep. you know, it was a little bit of universe delivered, right. Cause there's a little bit of still, I get to perform, you know, when we're yeah. out front of a room, like mm-hmm. being on court, I still get to tap into that, that performance element. Yeah, I had some really awkward conversations. I remember sitting in some city offices with people going, so why are you here? And I went, oh, I'm looking for a job and I don't really know what I want to do. And they I like, do you have any experience? <laughs> no, I used to play volleyball. Okay, great, mate. Well, we don't really have anything for you at the moment. <laughs> I had probably six, seven, eight of those types of conversations and, right. until something something changed. So there's a little yeah. bit of just putting myself out there and wearing yeah. your consequences.
1: Um. You, you said earlier on, I asked you off the cuff, you know, your top three tips on mindset. And I'm paraphrasing, I think you said, you know, obviously the importance of mindset, um, be open and ask for help. Yeah. Do you recognize how you applied those three principles in your shift from beach to office? Yeah,
2: it was everything. <laughs> it, it was the, it was everything because then after, after, well, the, the, the last part is, as we talk about, is take a massive action, right? You can sit there and have all the good intent. Okay, I'm going to be positive about this transition. I'm going to start uh, putting a list together of people I might be out of contact. But at some stage, you've got to pick up the phone. Mm. You've got to go to Maya and be measured up for a suit. You know, all <laughs> that stuff that I did is you... <clears throat> and a large part of it, too, is is leaving behind the identity of... It's you know, I was at the top of the sport. And I could have kept going to another Olympics. And, and I look back and go, oh, I probably could have gone one more with that, that guy I played Mark Williams in Athens mm-hmm. because we, we were really just hitting our straps and we could have gone. But I was starting, it had a young family, just uh, our, our first son was coming along. And I went, oh, do I really want to be dragging a bag around the planet again? I've kind of done it since I was 17. Time time, power to move on and get real here. So yeah. there's a large part of leaving behind identity of Of being at the top and then coming in at the bottom of a corporate ladder, going. Yeah. I remember walking in on day one, looking at with Lisa Shannon. She was sitting there. Oh, deer in headlights. Yeah. What's going on? And for at least the first three years, four years in that job, it was just a a complete. Every day was different and full of elements of anxiety and growth and then laughter and it was to to eventually then hitting this nice little groove where you go okay I get this whole new world yeah and so it was about leaving a lot of that stuff behind
1: it's interesting because one of the first things you said on our conversation was you know at seven years old I was good at everything you know I was the guy that picked up a cricket bat picked up a, a sharon picked up a ball and now I could do everything then you're in a corporate career you know a number of years later is when you obviously can't you're kind of the bottom of the rung you you pick up a pen and go which hand do i use you pick up a a (laughs) slide and go how do you press go how do you do you reflect on how that felt you're the guy who could do everything to the guy that could literally do nothing
2: yeah it's the burning platform because when i think about that's what drove you yeah like when you don't have a choice and you go well i'm leaving that behind Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to continue with that pathway, that career. I could have stayed in sport coaching, for example, but I, you know, there's not a lot of money and I wanted to earn a better income. And mm. I, I was really excited about going, what's this corporate world about? And learning something more about the world than, than this narrow channel of sport, because it's mm. quite na- narrow. And I've got so many of the, my former colleagues from the world tour in the sport, they're still in the sport and they're still yep. coaching. I just don't know how they do it. And and we need sports like ours. We need people like that who stay in the sport okay. and and give back and they're so passionate about it that they've devoted their life to this thing and I just went I can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's it's too much because this whole I'm excited to start at the bottom because then I go I meet someone like you and go here's a teacher. I can learn so much, you know, half of what I do or a third of what I do is just regurgitate what Pete told me uh, yeah, <laughs> or or you know, the sales uh, expert, all yeah. the uh, <laughs> the other you know, other colleagues of ours that I've just pinched ways yeah. of operating off. Yeah,
0: yeah. And,
2: and so that was really exciting. So I stand you know I'm, I'm now running my own solo consultancy with clients who love me. Well, that's why they tell me anyway yeah. uh, with, with in learning environments where I get get great feedback from the clients that I work with and that's really satisfying for me because that's still yes. that's a performance. And that's where I, I, the high expectations that I may have had for myself as an athlete, I definitely have for myself as a consultant.
1: So you you said earlier on there in that little speech that, you know, the burning platform. You know, when you don't have a choice, and I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, the premise of this conversation, this podcast is moving from I have to to I choose to, but what I heard you say was actually it can be as powerful when you have to when you have no choice uh, and so how how do you help people reconcile when they've obviously got choices they could choose to quit or stay they could choose to start a business or not start a business there's no compelling platform there's no i have to do this any advice for those that are in that well i've i've got a choice to make i can mm-hmm. choose to or not choose so the you know the energy the the, the platform isn't quite there. Any advice on how they might use that?
2: So the, other, the other reflection that I used to use as a as a driver, motivator, is I used to think, okay, when I'm 70, 75, what do I want to look back on? Yeah. And go at this point in in my life where I was making this transition, you know, what would I like myself to look back and go, you did it. You went for it. You made that change, or you played it a bit safe and you stayed in the sport, and you could have kept going with this, or you went, or or you went a different path. And so, part of me was—I used to go out in the future and go, well, well, you know, it's the the cheesy question: well, what do you want for your life? Type thing, and and whether it's you have to look at you know. Try and imagine yourself as an 80-year-old looking back at life and the choices that you make. Mm. That's one, that's one thing. Uh, the other, ultimately the burning platform for me was I, I wanted to live in an area of Sydney that's expensive on the northern beaches. <laughs> and I knew the income that I was going to get from staying in the sport. I, you know, really coaching uh, and moving into that was not going to provide the finances for me to enjoy the environment that I wanted to stay in. So and I had a family coming. So I went, okay, so what can I do? You know, where's where's it going to be initially a a role, a career where there's going to be an income that can support that? There was a real rational point to it as well, right? Around a, a dollars and cents things. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I want this in my life, being close to the ocean and the coast and staying in a big city. Well, that comes with a cost. So where can I find something that's gonna fulfill me as well as satisfy those other things.
1: Cool, look, Julian, um, I really appreciate the time, uh, but more the, the candor and the transparency and the vulnerability. You've, you've said things today that I haven't heard before. So thank you for that. I'm gonna finish if I could with just four or five quick fire questions. You, you don't know Good. what's coming. So the, yep. your first stop, your best stop. Um, what's the thing you miss about the beach the most?
2: The after-training dips in the ocean. Cool.
1: And what's the thing that you gained the most from moving into the life you're now in?
2: The the confidence to hold my own in almost any corporate setting, which I would never thought would be something that I could say. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise.
1: AFL or NRL? (laughs)
2: IFL <laughs> favorite that's an Aussie easy
1: one. favorite Aussie word.
2: Um, I I like tickety boo. Or there's a lot of surfling go I could go to because i yeah, okay. yeah, so, yeah.
1: um, And what's a book that's changed your life?
2: Oh, so I've got a couple up here. I'm looking at. Oh, what's a book has changed my life. Oh, i feel really disappointed. I can't answer this off the top of my head. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to pass on that, Pete. I can't think of anything.
1: Okay, cool. Well, Julian, thank you. This has been, for me, it's been tickety-boo.
2: <laughs> you know what it means. Yeah. Julian, thank you for awesome. the
0: conversation. And Absolutely,
2: pleasure. Time. Thanks, Pete.